Good morning, everyone. And let me say a special welcome to those who are new or visiting uh, this morning. My name's Andrew Reese. I'm part of the ministry team here. And inside uh, the handout that you received on your way in is uh, the reading that Louis read for us and an outline of uh, where we're heading as we look at it together. So that's worth having with you as we open this part of God's word. We've been working our way through as a church uh, Mark's gospel. And here we are, we've come to the night before uh, Jesus' death on the cross. Easter has taught us uh, these words, these scenes very well. We know them well from Easter. But in uh, the words of the poet T.S. Eliot, here's my prayer for us as we look at it again together this morning. He said this, We shall not cease from exploration, and at the end of all our exploring, we will uh, arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. So that's my prayer for us uh, in these coming weeks as we reach the climax of Mark's Gospel and uh, the speed of the narrative, which has been high-paced up to this point, slows completely down. And uh, we, we watch verse after verse covering just a few hours of Jesus' life and the camera will zoom in on his cross. And my prayer is that we will see these moments afresh because our eternity hangs on these moments. My prayer is that these moments will deeply nourish our faith in our Saviour. So let me pray to that end. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word about your Son, our Saviour, Jesus. Uh, wherever our heart is this morning, we pray that you would calm it, that we may hear this word, that we may see him, that we may trust him. Amen. Well, if I was to sum up, uh, when this is a, a sort of a grand uh, attempt in one way, uh, all of human history in one sentence, it would be the sentence uh, that Louis read for us from Proverbs 19, verse 21. Many are the plans in the human heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. Many are the plans in the human heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. And this passage in front of us this morning, Mark 14, uh, verse 10 onwards, is actually going to show us a human and divine plans. We're going to see the ugliness and the futility of human plans. And alongside that, we're going to see the beauty and the majesty of our God's plans. Now, you can see on the outline there, uh, what we'll see is very simple. We'll see the plans we make as humans. We'll see the problem with those plans. And then we'll see the plans our God makes. So let's look at each of those in turn. First, the plans we make. And at, at its simplest, uh, I wonder if you pick this up as... Uh, Louis was reading, uh, the, the plans uh, of these verses is just plans to share a meal with friends. Uh, but that seems to form the backdrop for much larger plans, our plans uh, and God's plans. Uh, here's the scene set at the start of Mark 14. Uh, now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away. That's the context. Uh, the, the festival of unleavened bread was, uh, if you like, a week-long celebration for the Jewish people, and, and it was followed at the end by the Passover meal itself, and over time in history, the, the two were bundled together into one celebration. They commemorated the, the wonderful moment when Israel was delivered out of Egypt, uh, during uh, which, uh, on uh, one tragic night, the firstborn of all of Egypt uh, were uh, passed away, and yet the firstborn of um, Israel had... Uh, that judgment passed over them and they were untouched. They were covered, uh, their doors, by the blood of the Lamb. That was the scene of the first Passover. And so each year, the families, Jewish families, would share a meal to celebrate that rescue. And so it's this moment, this yearly moment of celebration that will reveal both the goodness of God's plans 
and the darkness of human plans. Uh, let's look firstly at human plans. And the first group that we see making plans is actually just before our passage. We saw them last week. It's the plans that the authorities, and these are the religious authorities, the plans they make. Uh, listen to this from verse 1. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus and kill him. Now, throughout Mark's Gospel, if you read it through as one single narrative, you'll, you'll see this building desire from the religious elite to do away with Jesus, to kill him. Uh, they've attempted it at many points, but, but, but been held back by, well, a number of factors. And perhaps the most dominant factor, we saw this back in Mark verse, uh, chapter 12, verse 12, is they were afraid of the reaction of the crowds if they did it. And you see that appear again here in verse 2 of Mark 14. It, it, by this stage, Jerusalem is heaving with people. They've all turned up to celebrate the Passover, which was celebrated in Jerusalem. And if they were to put a foot wrong in their attempt to arrest and kill Jesus, they'd have the whole crowd against them. And so it, it's remarkable, isn't it? They are the authorities. They are the power holders uh, in this culture. And it, it, it seems they have no real power, just fear in this scene. There's our first planner, the religious elite making plans to be rid of God. And yet, I think in those plans, we see the plans our, well, really our whole world makes when it comes to God and when it comes to our relationship with him. Uh, we, our world is a world that longs to be rid of God. Uh, we want all of God's gifts, life, breath, everything else that we enjoy, but not the giver. We are self-determined creatures. And so we see ourselves in these plans. Here's our second planner, and if you've got the passage open in front of you, you'll see this in verses 10 and 11, it's the plan Judas, one of the disciples, makes. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. And they were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money, so he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. So this is what the authorities have been looking for, a moment where they could secretly arrest Jesus away from the crowd, and, and Judas is going to give that to them, and they make this trade over, well, a few coins, really. Uh, Judas, of all the figures in, in the New Testament, is one of the most mysterious characters in all of history. Uh, he's both compelling and, well, uh, completely ugly at the same time. Uh, here he is, one who has been close and walked with Jesus for these past three years, knows him well, uh, seemingly trusts him, and Jesus seemingly tr trusts Judas, and yet he sells him out. Jesus... Uh, the Bible tells us is worth more than all the universe he created. It's held together by him, and yet Judas sells him for a few coins. It seems a breathtakingly foolish trade. However, again, for us to call Judas foolish here is to label ourselves. Now, the Bible says of each of us as humans that we make similarly foolish exchanges when it comes to God. Even though he made us, even though he gives us life and breath and everything else, we have traded him in for a lot less than Judas got. At least Judas had, had something to show for his ignorance, a, a bag full of coins. But uh, the book of Romans in the New Testament says this of us, we've exchanged the living God for mute idols that we worship, money, uh, career, you name it. Uh, we've exchanged, Romans 1.25 says, the truth of God for a lie that there is no God. As this seemingly simple meal plans are being made we are witnessing much bigger plans aren't we in the background the, the plan to be rid of God and if you look at verse 11 of our passage verse 11 says that the authorities and Judas are delighted in this plan it's a great plan but 
If you go on in our passage, have a look at verse 17 onwards, we see the problem with such plans, the problem with our plans. While the planners are delighted with their trade, their plan is actually a disaster. Verse 17, when evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened and one by one they said to him, surely you don't mean me. You can sense the uncertainty in, the, in, the, in their question there. It's one of the twelve, he replied. One who dips the bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go, just as it's been written about him, but woe to the man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Do you see how disastrous these plans are? Zoom in on verse 21 if you've got the passage open there, and you, you see Jesus drop two huge shocks on the human planning to be rid of God. Here, here's the first shock. Uh, these events where they look like they're making the plans and, 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 and making the decisions. Ultimately, it's not according to human plan, but God's plan. Jesus says this, The Son of Man, that's Jesus, the Son of Man will go as it has been written about him. Long before these scenes play out, long before these power plays are happening, God's word, the Old Testament, has promised that this very event would happen. God is in charge at this moment. Here's the second thing. Their delight in their plans will be short-lived. We're told here by Jesus, there is no worse plan than to betray him. Woe to the man who betrays the Son of Man. And so that's what leads up to the meal. We see who we actually are, God's enemies, on the path to his judgment. That's the picture here Jesus gives us. And what we need to face as we look at it together is that any hope at this point depends not on our plans and what we can do about it, but that they lead nowhere, or nowhere good. Our hope depends on someone being prepared to separate us out from God's enemies, where we have put ourselves by our plans. Someone being prepared to take the consequence of that, that sin away from us. Our hope depends on the one we've betrayed being prepared to forgive us. And for me, as we prepare to share in the Lord's Supper together in a few moments, uh, that is the wonder of the Christian gospel. As this meal, this simple meal that they're celebrating in this moment comes close, we see our God planning to do the very thing we desperately need, making plans to forgive betrayers. And we need to thank him that his plans prevail, not ours. And so let's look together in this passage at the plans he makes. As the meal plans are, are taking shape, what, what becomes abundantly clear in this scene is just how completely in control of this moment Jesus is. Do you see what he does in verse 13? He sends two of the disciples out to prepare for the Passover meal. And he gives in verses 13 to 15 uh, very specific, very clear instructions. And they follow them and they're told to follow them to the letter. And then by verse 16 we're told this, they find everything just as he said it would be. Nothing is accidental here. He's in control. God is completely at the helm of this meal and indeed the plans behind it. But we must ask, why such intricate plans for just a yearly meal? Why is it so important? Well, step back for a moment and consider the details of that Passover meal. First, consider what was the centrepiece of a Passover meal. It's the Passover lamb that they ate together. The Passover meal uh, was, was enjoyed by families gathering together and they would gather around a table and the, the head of the family would stand up and he'd give thanks for the meal and, and then a question would be asked, usually by the youngest around the table, and this was the question. 
why is this night different from any other night? And the father would then explain the meaning of that first Passover, that their forefathers had been slaves in Egypt, trapped there, but God had seen their suffering and had rescued them. But here's a remarkable thing. Jesus, as the head of this table in this scene in Mark 14, as he is asked that same question, why is this night different from any other night? He doesn't speak of the past rescue, but of future things. Things that have never been spoken before at a Passover. The original Passover meal's most significant moment was the eating of the Passover lamb together. In the eating of it, they were recalling what had kept them safe from God's judgment on that fateful night of the first Passover. That they were able to take shelter under the blood of this lamb. However, every time they had that meal, year upon year upon year, one question remained unresolved. Israel's firstborn were not passed over because they were without sin. No, they weren't. The sin, uh, their sin was covered by this blood of the lamb. That's what kept them safe. But here's the question. Why and how can a blood, the blood of a lamb possibly cover all our mistakes? The answer is in what's missing from the description of the meal in Mark 14. Did you notice it? Remember what's supposed to be at the centre of this meal? The lamb. Well, look at the meal. There is the wine, there's the bread, but where's the lamb? Where's the focal point of this celebration? Where is the Passover lamb? Well, here's the wonder of this moment in the upper room. As God's unfolding rescue plan is being revealed here, not just for Israel, but actually for the whole world, the the moment has come for our world to see the lamb that actually saved them that first Passover, the lamb that would save the world this Passover. There's no lamb on the table because the lamb is sitting at the table with them his name is jesus it's a right question to ask how can a lamb cover my sin my mistakes how can a lamb possibly buy my forgiveness because i reckon if any of us and i suspect most of us have had to do this if you've ever had to forgive someone genuinely forgive them from the heart you know how costly it is If someone has wronged you and and they genuinely ask for forgiveness as as if nothing has happened, as if the slate is wiped clean, that that costs the person who's been wronged deeply. You cannot forgive someone without cost. And so this meal reveals the true cost of our forgiveness before God for betraying him. It is the cost of this lamb, Jesus. It's a remarkable meal. Imagine this with me. Imagine you're planning a party. Uh, where you're the host and you, you you start to make the invitations of who you'd like to have with you there as you celebrate this whatever significant moment it is and you, here's what you do you choose to invite your enemies you surround yourself on your table with those who are opposed to you well that's what jesus has done here uh, judas is there and we already know he's made plans to be rid of jesus for a few coins Uh, The Apostle Peter is there, and we're going to see next week. Uh, Imagine inviting someone to your party who you know will save you in just a few hours. You know, I don't even know the guy. And then all the others gathered around the table will leave him for dead in a matter of moments. Imagine doing what Jesus is doing here. You sit down to write the guest list, and you put at the top of your list the person who'd rather have money than you. The person who'll pretend you've never met. The people who will want nothing to do with you. Would you invite them? Why should you? Meals are for celebrating with friends. But not so with Jesus. 
Consider this, and this is a remarkable detail that another one of the Gospels, Luke's Gospel, picks up about this moment. As Jesus sits down at the table with his enemies, with those who will deny him, with those who will desert him, he looks around the table and he knows their hearts and then he says this, I have eagerly desired to share this meal with you. He knows what's about to happen and yet he still says that. It's amazing. He is overjoyed because here at last they will see the extent of God's love for them. Here at last they will see God's sovereign and costly and sufficient and perfect once and for all plan to forgive us. While we make our ugly, futile plans, God is making this breathtakingly good plan. You can only imagine the delight that God the Father and the Son and the Spirit felt as this meal that they'd been planning for all eternity came around at last. To see the guests uh, see the plan. And so with the preparations in place, we bring our sin. That's what we bring to the, to the party. You, you ever been asked, when you go to someone's house for a meal or a party and, and you ask the obligatory question you feel like you're meant to ask as a guest, well, what can I bring? And, and they simply say, well, just bring yourself. Well, here's what we bring. We bring, well, we bring our sin. And he brings his life. He brings himself. And so with the occasion just right, the night of God's rescue, the Passover, with the guests gathering, sinners with their God, the meal begins. And the host, Jesus, begins to serve. Do you see it there, verse 22? Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, this is my body. It's remarkable, isn't it? This is my body. As the bread is given, so will his body be given on that cross. His body uh, given as a substitute. Remember what he said about betrayers? Woe to the man who betrays the son. Woe to the man who betrays the son of man. It would be better for him not to have been born. Woe to the one who would be willing to trade Jesus in, to live as if God was not there. Woe to the one who is under God's judgment. It would be better not to have been born. They are strong words, aren't they? Unless this, unless another is born to die in our place. Unless one comes to take the judgment for us, Jesus declares, this is my body in your place. His body given for us. It's personal, isn't it? As he hands that bread to each disciple, he says, this is my body given for you. This is not some neutral exchange between God the Father and the Son. He has a very clear subject in mind as he gives his body. You and I are his treasure. That's why he did it. He has decided it's worth buying us back. I mean, what a meal. It's unforgettable, isn't it? You sit down at his table as his enemy, deserving his judgment, and yet you get to leave free from sin and free from judgment, and you've brought nothing. And finally this, verse 23, he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of, and it should say there, the new covenant, which is poured out for many. See, having a share in this meal is about having a share in God's new covenant, his new plan for the world, and his new plan to deal with us, his enemies. The promise here is a new life. It says we can start again with God. New relationship with him. And we're not just free to go because we're forgiven of our sin. We're free to stay at his table now as his friends. This meal takes us from enemy to forgiven to friend. The sort of friend that Jesus longs to be with. And this new covenant that he speaks of, it's actually a reference to Jeremiah 31 where God promises this, 
of those who share in this meal. He will give us a new heart and we will long to be with him too. That's what this meal is about. And so this meal that we will actually share in remembrance in just a few moments is, is a sign. It's just a sign, but what an incredible sign. A sign that says that there on the cross, Jesus' body and blood was given. And as it was, the Son cried out to heaven, all that we planned, it is finished. And heaven says in response, it's enough. Let forgiveness come. Let new life come. Well, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this plan that you make your good and prevailing plan. We thank you that many of the plans that we make and yet your purpose prevails. And we thank you that your purpose is gracious and kind and good and far more than we deserve. And so as we sing together now and as we prepare to share in the Lord's Supper, remind us afresh of just how good you are. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to sing together now, so please...